The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Scripture's passage is Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 17. That's on page 522 of your Pewback Bible. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, we would love to give you one of those black hardback Bibles as a gift from Park Church. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor would wickedness deliver those who are given to the will. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work that God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Thank you, Ben. Ben's wearing a red shirt because he's a Chiefs fan. And uh, Chiefs versus Broncos tonight. And the biggest question is what? What's the biggest question? Will Taylor be there? That's the biggest question that people are asking about this, this, this Broncos game. Ugh. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, thanks for braving the winter. My name's Gary. Um, one of the pastors here. Uh, 
truly, thanks for coming out on a wintry day. I feel like winter came, winter, it's not winter yet, I know, I get it, uh, but like the winter weather came like a freight train. I, I thought like the dusting yesterday morning was like, oh, kind of cool. And then that six inches, I love it. You might not, if you're new to Colorado and you think, oh no, is this going to be it? You know, you like it for like a day, but if you imagine this for like five months, it's not going to be like this for five months. Colorado's way cooler than that. It's like, it'll be like this, and then it won't. It'll get warm and nice, and then it'll be like this, and it won't. And all the time, that, that kind of base is going to be building up in the resorts, so you can go enjoy it. That base is going to keep building. we got some good snow up in the mountains. It's wonderful. Uh, thank God for Colorado. I love it. Enjoy the snow. Thanks for coming uh, on a day like today. If you are new and um, you're looking for more ways to get involved in our community, right after the service, we have a meeting that's designed for you in the back corner. It says new here. We take about 10 minutes to get to know you a little bit and help you find some more ways to get involved in our community, um, share with you a little bit about who we are and what we're doing and, and help you find some ways to plug in if you're interested in getting more involved. Um, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to uh, dive in today a little bit different. I'm going to spend some time uh, talking about some kind of big picture stuff about Ecclesiastes. We're Let's see, this is our eighth week of 12 weeks, and so we just need to kind of circle back as I've gotten feedback from different people throughout the series, uh, just some things I want to continue to situate this series of this particular book and some, and some bigger picture realities. Um, so we'll do that for a few minutes this morning, and then we'll dive into chapter eight specifically. Uh, but as we do it, our hope is not just to spend time kind of like opening up uh, a book and talking about old documents and, and trying to like make sense of how they apply to our life. We actually believe that God is with us. That Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to be with you all the time, all the way to the end of the age. And uh, so we believe that God wants to do something in our hearts, that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is intended to both give us wisdom for how to live this life with thoughtfulness and health and with maturity, but also to point us to Jesus and grow in us a deeper faith in Christ and his kingdom. And so let's pray together that God would do that among us. Um, Jesus, we right now uh, thank you for being with us that we're not alone in this moment or we're not alone in this world as we're navigating through the complexities of life that all of us face with its, with its mixture of beautiful and incredible and joyful moments and incredibly devastating and painful and grievous moments. As we navigate through this kind of a world, uh, we thank you uh, that you are with us, that you've sent your spirit to work among us, to give people faith in Christ, to draw our attention to who you are, to your redeeming love, your power to forgive, to reconcile, to heal, to transform, and to give hope. But you've also showed us how to live. And so as we spend time in Ecclesiastes this morning, uh, would you grow us as disciples of Jesus? For those that don't even yet know you and know the depth of your love, who have not yet put their hope in you, that are even today uh, building their life and their hope on things that are shakable and shaking, I pray that you would draw them today to deep, rich, joyful faith, Jesus, in you and in your kingdom. And so would you do powerful, miraculous, stunning, beautiful things among us today as we gather. In Christ's name, amen. Um, at the beginning of the series, I asked a question about Ecclesiastes. I said something like, how many of you are like already pumped about the book of Ecclesiastes? And quite a few people open their hand, like raise their hands, like, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped about this series. And I, I'm not going to ask the question, but I'm like fascinated by the idea of like, I wonder if that's changed for anybody. Like uh, for the people that are like, yes, I'm pumped about this. I wonder if like eight weeks in, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, less, I'm less pumped about this. Um, Ecclesiastes feels 
almost like, um, like the Debbie Downer of the Bible. Do you remember Debbie Downer from SNL? You remember this? All right. So Debbie Downer, Rachel Dratch. Rachel Dratch is hilarious. She's hilarious. Um, but this character is just iconic, right? If you ever heard like when things go sour, you hear that kind of womp, womp. This is like Debbie Downer theme song, right? Like things are going well and along comes Debbie Downer. And so the skits on SNL would be like people talking about their excitement about going to Disney or their excitement about some meal. And, and Debbie would always just kind of like, you know, interject an incredibly depressing and dark thought about that thing just to suck the joy out of the room. It's like every time someone would be excited, she'd offer some like devastating perspective. I feel that that's, it can almost begin to feel like that's what Ecclesiastes is doing. You're like, I'm so pumped about my new job. I feel a lot of meaning and purpose. There's great opportunities for growth and it's in Denver. This is exciting. And Ecclesiastes is going to be like, don't put your hope in your job. Your finances are uncertain. Your job's uncertain. You'll probably eventually get laid off. Even if you don't, at the end of the day, it's not going to amount to anything. (laughs) You're like, okay. You're like, but my new relationship with this guy or this girl, I'm excited. It's growing and it's fun. It's like, cool. Love that. That's awesome. Like, if it works out, which not certain, um, if it works out, just remember, at some point, you'll be standing by his or her grave and... uh, (laughs) That's like, that's legit what it's doing. You're like... It's just over and over. You're like, this, I was excited, but eight weeks, come on. So here, here's what I want to do. I've gotten feedback, right? A lot of people this has resonated with, and it's, and it's felt like, man, this is like meeting me, and it's helpful, and it's a little prickly, but, um, but I like it. Other people uh, have, it's been hard. It's been hard. You're like, how, how does this speak to a life when I'm actually feeling a lot of purpose and meaning and joy? Things are going pretty well. I'm excited about what I'm doing. What about as a church? We talk a lot about faith and work, that your work, your vocation has real meaning and value as you offer the the life and the gifts and the skills and the resources God has given you for the good of others and for the glory of God. That, That stuff matters. So how does this book that keeps poking holes in all these kind of like things that we do how is it helpful and how do I situate that in the bigger picture of life? And so what I want to do is I'll actually spend about half of our time, just giving you a heads up, half of our time giving some just big picture situating, framing thoughts. And I have three of them. Just to keep this in perspective about the, the value it has and to put that value to give you some like mental space for it, for where it resonates and where it might not resonate. And then we'll dive specifically into the wisdom that's offered in chapter eight. We'll move a little more quickly. It's in the same kind of space of what we've been processing. And so we're not going to go into all the details of chapter eight, but we'll go into the main pieces of wisdom that it offers ultimately leading us towards Jesus. And that's what we do every Sunday. We say, how does the scriptures lead us towards a deeper and stronger faith in Christ and in his kingdom? So that's what we're going to do. So I have three framing thoughts and then four words of wisdom from chapter eight. Three framing thoughts, big picture, and then four words of wisdom from Ecclesiastes 8. So framing thought, number one, that I want us to pay attention to as we consider what role this book has in our lives is that Ecclesiastes provides one perspective of the Hebrew wisdom tradition. In the Hebrew wisdom tradition, there are traditionally three books in the Hebrew Bible or your Old Testament that are considered a part of the wisdom tradition. There are five books that could be considered wisdom books, and, and the five books would include both Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and then also some people would consider Song of Solomon, 
And some of the Psalms are considered wisdom Psalms. But the three books that are considered a part of Hebrew wisdom tradition or Hebrew wisdom literature are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they function together to help give wisdom for human beings that are operating in this world on the ground. And so a lot of the Bible is telling you the history of God's dealing with the people of Israel and how that was leading towards the need and the coming of Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the coming of Jesus. And so a lot of the Bible is going to tell that story. These wisdom books kind of step out from directly talking about the advancement of that storyline, and they step into just talking about life on the ground in the midst of that story as we're living. How do you go about living your life with wisdom, with the wisdom of God in the midst of the complexity of the world that we live in? And the world we live in is very complex. And Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job offer a few different perspectives that sometimes stand in tension and are intended to stand in tension with one another to help give a fuller understanding of what wisdom in a complex world looks like. And we live in an incredibly complex world. We, we live in a world here and now where there is both honeymoons and marital strife and the loss of spouses and the breakdown of marriages. You live in a world where there are birthday parties And then there are shootings at bowling alleys with little kids. You live in that world. You live in a world where there are final exams and there are job interviews and there are mass corporate layoffs. You live in a world where there are vacations on the Mediterranean Sea that are incredible, while on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea there is a massive war in Gaza and Israel. Like, you live in a world where there are things like Sour Patch Kids and chemotherapy. How do you you find wisdom in this world? It is wild. It is wildly complex. And so Ecclesiastes plays a part in that story of giving wisdom for living in that kind of world. Proverbs plays a part, and Job plays a part, and we need to understand the role that Ecclesiastes plays in the bigger whole so that we don't give excessive attention to one part without attending to the other aspects and perspectives. Uh, There's a guy named Christopher Wright who wrote one of my favorite books, most formative books of all time, called The Mission of God, where he kind of explores the the kind of redemptive storyline in the Bible um, throughout the whole story, and he says this about wisdom literature. He says the most challenging difference between wisdom, meaning the wisdom literature, and the rest of the Old Testament tradition arises when some voices within the former wisdom literature express doubts about or question the universal applicability of some of the mainline affirmations in other parts of the Old Testament. And yet this may be precisely part of the purpose of the presence of this material in the canon of Scripture, to compel us toward an honest faith that's willing to acknowledge the existence of doubts we cannot entirely dismiss and questions we cannot satisfactorily answer within the limits of our experience or even the limits of the revelation God has chosen to give us. That the wisdom literature welcomes us into, and I would say in particular things like Job and Ecclesiastes, the wrestling and the doubts. Christians have doubts. If you're like, I have doubts, I don't know if I'm a good Christian. If you have doubts, it means you're a normal Christian. We have doubts, we wrestle, we live in this complex and challenging and difficult world. And Ecclesiastes and Job are two of the wisdom traditions that speak into those unanswered questions, that wrestling, the the times where it feels like, 
man, the word of God says this in these places, but in my experience, it's really confusing and disorienting, and I don't know what to do with that. Well, then read Ecclesiastes. That's what, this is basically what the whole book is. Like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And so it offers these varying perspectives. And so I want to talk about that tension that they pull. I heard uh, John Collins from the Bible Project one time uh, kind of give a, a hypothetical scenario to help make sense of the way that these kinds of wisdom literature can relate to each other. And it's essentially something like this. He compared the wisdom literature of the Bible, or if you're going to seek the Bible's wisdom about a particular topic, it'd almost be like going into like a bar. And imagine going into a bar, and this bar is like, the bar is like Hebrew wisdom, right? Hebrew wisdom literature is the bar. And so you go into the bar, unless you have a question about, hey, I'm thinking about having kids, and I'm processing, and it's kind of a big thought, and I want to be faithful with that, I want to do that well, and... Um, and so I'm going to go seek Hebrew wisdom uh, for how to think about this. And you walk into the bar, and in the bar you have this, this lady, it's Lady Wisdom. And in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom is kind of, wisdom is personified as this feminine figure that's offering wisdom for how to approach life. And so you have Lady Wisdom there, and you go to Proverbs, right? And you sit with Lady Wisdom at a, at a table, and she is smart. She is thoughtful. She is successful. She's done really well. She's learned the life hacks and the tips and the techniques. She's surveyed people and researched and paid attention. And she has incredible wisdom. And she has a lot of optimism about this. And so you say to to Proverbs, to Lady Wisdom, you're like, okay, thinking about having kids, do you have any like wisdom for me? And she's like, oh man, praise the Lord. This is incredible. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and blessed are those who fill their quiver with them. Like, okay, all right, I like this. You know, like, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they won't depart from it. Like, be faithful, be diligent, invest in your kids, and they will thrive. She'll say things like, just wait. When you do that and you see your kids thrive, just wait till you're older and your kids have kids. Grandchildren are like a crown on the age of the elderly, that they get to look at their grandchildren. It's this, like, crown of righteousness and joy and delight to see your grandchildren, the children of your children, living and thriving in the world. And you're like, all right. You're, like, pumped about that. And she has all this wisdom about, hey, life often works like this, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and what a gift. And here's some wisdom about how to be faithful. Fear the Lord, trust Him, follow Him, and things tend to work out better. You're like, okay. And you have some, some other guy that walks over, and he's like, hey, saw you talking about kids to, to Lady Wisdom. It's good stuff, good stuff. I have a friend over here uh, that I think you should chat with. And then, so he says, I'd like to introduce you to the preacher. And you're like, wait, is he? And he's like, no, he's, he's up at the bar because that's where like old cynical preachers hang out, is up at the bar. And so, so you're like, okay. And so he walks you up and he says, this is my friend, the preacher. We'll call him Kohelet. That's the Hebrew name for the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Let's call him, call him Kohelet. And he says, Kohelet would affirm what she said in ways, but she, he's got some other thoughts that might be helpful. And he says, thinking about having kids, huh? cool, 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 you know, um, love that. It can be really sweet. I just want to encourage you, don't put your hope in that. Uh, There's no guarantee that you'll be able to have children. A lot of people wrestle with infertility. I have a lot of friends who have been devastated by that reality. When you do have kids, there are beautiful moments, but there are also stressful moments. You'll be exhausted. You'll be financially drained. You'll want to pull your hair out at times. And if you think it's just going to satisfy your soul, 
you're, you're, you're missing something. It won't. There are gifts, and enjoy those gifts. When the kids cuddle up on your lap on Christmas morning and all their PJs and you're opening gifts, love that. Take a photo of it that you can look back on like pensively and reflectively when it doesn't feel like that anymore. Because those moments will come and then those moments will go. And you'll live your life nostalgically, wistfully, like longing to get back to that. But instead, they'll grow up. And at some point in their teenage years, they're not going to want to be around as much. And you'll feel like they're slipping out of your hands. And they'll go off to college. And they'll come back. And you'll feel them changing. And then they'll get married. And you'll be like hoping they choose to come back to your house for the holidays. But they go to their spouse's house. And they come to you and express the pain that they have in their relationship with you. And the relationship is strained. And then all that investment, you think, what was it worth? And then, and then, at some point you die and they die. You're like, huh. And then the buddy's like, yes, true. That happens sometimes. That happens sometimes. But still, like, fear God, keep his commandments. What you do matters. And it can be beautiful, but it can also be painful. And if you put your hope too much in it, you'll find yourself disappointed and hurting, and you'll be hoping in something and trying to get a joy out of something that was never designed to give you that depth of joy. So enjoy the moments, love the things, but be careful not to put your hope in things that are that shakable and fragile. They will fade. And then before you go, the guy says, hey, you should talk to one more person. He's sitting in the back corner over there, and his name's Job, and he has some perspective that I think would be valuable. So you're like, all right, you know, you're feeling a little disoriented, and you go and you sit down with Job. And Job is like, man, thinking about kids is beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and, your, and your interest in doing it well, man, I just want to commend that. Like to, to seek to be righteous and faithful in the way you think about it. What, what a gift. I, I, I felt similarly when I was your age. I was excited and I wanted to do it well and I worked really hard and built a, a family and I prayed for my kids every day. I sought to honor God and to be faithful in every way I could. We built a life. We built a home. We built a property. We had a farm. We had employees that worked on the farm. Like, we had a, we had a beautiful life and um, in, a, in, a, in a wild and devastating series of, of events, I lost everything. My kids were killed in a fire. My property and my wealth and my home were lost. My health itself deteriorated. My marriage strained to a, a breaking point, and I questioned everything. And I, and I tried to turn to God in that space, but it entered me into a dark night of the soul. I had friends that didn't know what to do with me, and they'd come and offer thoughts and wisdom, and honestly, it wasn't particularly helpful. It made me feel more isolated, more alone. And I wrestled hard. And I, I was on the edge of like rejecting God altogether, and I wrestled with him for a long season. And in the end, I had to come to terms with the fact that I am a creature and God is the creator. And though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And I'm going to trust him even when I don't understand it. And it was humbling and it was hard, but I got to a point where I had to surrender to the creator and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I, I repent in my accusations against you. I'm going to trust you with whatever that means. And I will tell you, that wasn't easy, it wasn't pleasant, it wasn't immediate, it was a journey. But the ways that God redeemed my story, I could have never imagined. He didn't erase my pain or undo it, but he redeemed it in ways 
that were stunning to me. And it taught me that even in the midst of the dark times, I can hope that my Redeemer lives. And I can trust him even in the most devastating loss that he can redeem and restore the most broken and most painful realities. And so what Ecclesiastes said to you is true. It can be devastating. What Lady Wisdom said to you is true. There's real beauty. But even when there's pain, even when there's devastation, hold fast to the reign of God. Trust him. He is a redeemer, and he can restore even the most broken things. And you could walk out of Hebrew wisdom literature with the full kind of spectrum of what it offers you as you navigate in life in this world. And you could take that same framework and think about vocation, possessions, friendship, sexuality, pleasure, all of it. And you could get this wisdom from them. And, and I want to share that because, again, it, it situates Ecclesiastes as one perspective in the broader realities of Hebrew wisdom literature. So why are we focusing on this one? Because I think it's a particular perspective that we have a hard time as Western American evangelical-ish people to really give attention to the darker and more painful realities. We tend to be more in the optimistic, if I do like good work and faithful work and work hard, things should go well. And Ecclesiastes prepares you for that not always being the case. It's the first framing thought. It's our biggest and kind of spend the most time on that framing thought. Second framing thought about this is that Ecclesiastes resonates in some seasons of life more than others. It resonates in some seasons of life more than others, given the fact that Ecclesiastes is focusing more on the darker, more painful aspects of life. There are times when the season of your life, it doesn't feel like that. You feel like you're in a joyful season. You just graduated from college. You're getting a new job. You're in a new relationship that's exciting. Your family's just starting. You're pregnant. You just had your first kid. You you moved to Denver. You're whatever it is. You're like, this is good. I'm happy. And I come to church for eight weeks in a row, and they keep Debbie downering me and like trying to get me to be depressed about my life when my life feels good. I like what I'm doing. I, I have joy in it. And I think there's some ability to enjoy these things. And I'm starting a new business and I'm doing these things and I want to do it faithfully and well. And I would say, praise God. Praise God. Love that. Enjoy that. Take the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and instead of rejecting it, if you feel dissonance, instead of rejecting it, just put it on a shelf. Just put it on a shelf. Hey, this is there. It's in the Bible. The time will come when the hard stuff of life will hit you in varying forms and fashions and to varying degrees. It'll hit you. And to know that there's a book of the Bible that's honest about that, that the things and the disorientation you might feel when that happens, when your dreams get kicked in the teeth, you're like, you're starting to sound like Ecclesiastes. I'm like, I know. It's like I'm right in that midlife where like things have gotten kicked in the teeth and Ecclesiastes has been like a gift to me. Like, oh, okay. This is life under the sun. I can wrestle with my disorientation and my doubts and my confusion and frustrations. And I found a lot of people in our church are really resonating with Ecclesiastes, especially people who have tasted real pain, deep pain, and have come to terms with the ability that they can't fix that. They now live with pain, and Ecclesiastes meets you there. You don't have to be there. I don't wish you to be there. If this is a season where it's not resonating deeply, that's okay. It's in the Bible for you. 
and it might resonate in a different season. Ecclesiastes is honest about that. There are times to build and times to tear down. There are times to plant, times to pluck up what was planted. There are times to weep and there are times to laugh. There are times to mourn and there are times to dance. It's going to focus on the darker half of those things. It's going to focus more on that space. If you're in the kind of lighter, kind of more joyful aspects of that, praise God. Praise God. I love that. What a gift. Those seasons come and they go. Ecclesiastes is here for you when you need it. Third framing thought. Third framing thought. Ecclesiastes is provocative on purpose. I would call it provocative wisdom. It's not just like wisdom. It's intended to provoke you. And I say that on on its own authority. At the end of Ecclesiastes, we'll get there in a few weeks, in chapter 12, when the frame narrator, the kind of, the buddy that's like, hey, I want you to listen to my friend Kohelet over here. When that guy comes back at the very end of Ecclesiastes, the last four verses, he's going to say, hey, that was interesting. That was heavy stuff. It's intended like the goad in the hands of a shepherd to poke you towards something. It's prickly on purpose. And so if you're like, "There, there are parts of this there are parts of this that are really uncomfortable for me. I would say, good. It's supposed to be. It's actually supposed to be. And my job as a preacher is not to shield you from that, not to soften it, but to be as prickly as Ecclesiastes is, you're going to hear that from me, even when it's like uncomfortable for me, even when I'm wrestling with the same kinds of discomfort, because I think it's prickly on purpose. It's, it's provocative on purpose. At the end of the day, Ecclesiastes is going to kind of meet you. If you're feeling like, well, this isn't a season where I deeply resonate, that's okay. Is it possible also that Ecclesiastes poking holes in the sort of Debbie Downerish way in family and possessions and household and pleasure and vacation and recreation and health, is it possible that the poking holes and the kind of shining a light on the cracks in those things is actually revealing something true, that those things can't ultimately give life. And in as much as we build our life on shakable things that we can achieve or accumulate or accomplish or experience in this world, that it is a gift to us. If Ecclesiastes shines a light and says that foundation you're standing on is cracking. And the goal of Ecclesiastes isn't just like leave you in like this depression, but to point you to, to put your hope in something more sure. That the, the world itself is broken. And we live under the sun. There's something broken we talked about in the first chapter. There's something broken and there's something missing. When you think about your career, what a gift. There's something broken and there's something missing in vocational life. When you think about family, what a gift. There's something broken and there's something missing. When you think about pleasure and recreation and experiences, something broken, something missing. And by pointing out the brokenness in the, in the inadequacy of these things, it reminds us to to put our hope in a God who is redeeming the world. It teaches us that this world needs a Savior. This world needs a Savior. And if your approach to life in this world doesn't lead you to feel like we need a Savior, then we need provocation. Your, your, um, Your worldview needs to be attacked. Because you're living in a delusional reality that will end up crushing you. And so this is going to shine light on the dark things so that we can come to terms with the fact that my life, my soul, my heart, and my relationships, and my friends, and my family, and our church, and our city, and the world need a Savior. 
We can't fix this thing. We need Christ. We need the coming of the Christ. Ecclesiastes plays a part in this unfolding story, teaching people that apart from God's intervention in human history, we're in a bad spot. We need the coming of a Savior to redeem and restore, to give healing, forgiveness, hope, and life to the world. And so it's provocative on purpose. It's pointing us more and more deeply to Jesus. And it's providing legit wisdom for how to navigate here and now. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to shift gears. Those are three framing thoughts, is that it is one of this kind of broader corpus of Hebrew wisdom literature, one perspective that needs to be held in tension with the other two perspectives. Second, it will resonate with you at some times, some seasons, more than other seasons. And third, it's, it's provoking on purpose. And we need to let it provoke us towards Jesus. We need to let it poke us like a, like a goad, which is like a stick with spikes on the end of it that you'd use to get the sheep to go that way instead of that way. It's like, let's go to Jesus, and Ecclesiastes is going to help us go to Jesus. All right, so Hebrews, sound good? All right, here we go. You're like, that was, tell me that was your whole sermon, Gary. I'm like, well, no. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through a handful of observations. And, and these observations are things that have come up in multiple ways. We'll hone in on some of them a little more again next week. Chapter 9 picks up the, the same kind of uh, form of thought and will take us deeper into the, some of the joy side of this experience. But look with me. This is chapter 8. Uh, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at four words of wisdom from this. If it's provocative wisdom, the wisdom itself means like if you stop and think about life, this is sensible. This is sensible. And so look with me, Hebrews 8, uh, 1 says this. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. It's this sort of introductory proverb saying, uh, wisdom helps you try to like sort through how to navigate through life. So you're living life under the sun in this wildly complex world. Wisdom is there to help you try to understand Things And when you have a sense of clarity about how to engage in something, it can bring a sense of joy, even a joyful countenance, even in complex things. And it can soften the hard, hardness of face when you have a sense of how could I navigate through this complex reality. And so the first kind of word of wisdom is going to be in chapter uh, 8, verses 2 through 9. And I'll just state it uh, like this, um, that we are called to practice wisdom and patience in a world where you can't fix all the problems. So how do we live in this world? Well, to live in this world, you're going to need wisdom and patience because you're navigating in a world where you cannot fix all the problems. Look at what he says, verse 2. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand on an evil case, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So whoever keeps his command will know, it says in the ESV, it says no evil thing, probably a better translation, will know no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So here's the picture. It portrays a person in a country with an aristocracy. So you live in a world where in America we have checks and balances, where you've got the judiciary system, right? You've got the congressional branch, the lawmakers. You've got the executive branch. We have checks and balances. It's a thoughtful system, pretty intelligent to kind of keep powers in check to some degree. And uh, in, throughout the majority of the world, 
throughout history, it wasn't like that. You've got a king or some sort of aristocracy or monarchy, monarchy of some kind. And, and that king is like, the financial system flows from the king. The judicial system flows from the king. The military system flows from the king. The kind of like ability to arb- like uh, arbitrate between different like situations, this flows from the king. And so if the king is an unjust king that's upholding unjust policies that are hurtful and painful, it says that later that in our world with all the evil, we exercise power in ways that end up harming other people. So when you put a sinful person in a place of absolute power, and you live in this kingdom, and the king's doing something that feels unhealthy or unjust or harmful, and you're going to keep like poking at the king every time the king does something unjust, unhelpful, or wrong, chances are the king's going to eventually say, off with his head. Like, and so he's just saying, you live in a world where you don't have the power over the king. The king's supreme. He can do whatever he wants. And so how, how do you navigate in a world where there are powers outside of your control, where there are problems beyond your ability to fix and to address, and you have to come to terms with that. We have to come to terms today that we live in a world that is full of incredible problems. There are grievous evils. I will not make light of any of those problems. They are grievous evils. But you and I could sit together and brainstorm, how could we fix, let's like just start brainstorming the problems we're aware of. That list would become infinitely long. And we'd pick which ones we want to address. And we could address some of them. Your voice, your agency, your life matters. The Bible speaks often to the importance of seeking to do justice, to advocate for the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. The Bible's crystal clear about that. But if you think that if we did that effectively and well enough, we'd fix all the problems, that's not, that's not real. That's not real. And so you have to, this is wisdom, I'm like I'm assuming you are like engage with me intelligently on this. I'm not saying not to care or advocate or engage or to seek to do justice. We ought to, must. It is a biblical mandate. It is who we are called to be as human beings. At the same time, if you live, if you think that like the only kind of like your your whole life has to be opposing and advocating for every kind of injustice or pain or unhealth in the world in your job in your family, in your friendships, in our society, in our nation, and in the world, you will live your life like with a kind of pressure on you to fix these things that you were not designed to carry. You'll find yourself always angry at somebody or something, always stepping into things that are often over over your ability to fix and to address, and often feeling disillusioned and frustrated. And so what he says is not, we don't care. He says in this passage, when you see the king doing something like this, you don't always need to tell him. You don't always need to tell him. You're like, that feels really pragmatic and cowardice. There's, there's wisdom. You don't always have the agency or the ability or the responsibility to address everything that's broken. You do have the agency responsibility and the calling to address some things, but you need to learn how to balance that with wisdom. Uh, We live in a world where there are devastating injustices all around us, and the majority of us in this room have lived relatively privileged lives, and so I I recognize that. I want to name that. I I want to communicate something the Bible says here, and I want to own and recognize the limitations of my own voice in this, given who I am as like a white male in a city like Denver in a country like the United States. That's real. That's real. I don't understand 
the idea of being subjected to injustices the way that many people in this world understand. So can, can you hear me name that? And I, just, I still want to be faithful to say what this says. What this says is that a world in which you feel a sense of internal obligation to address everything that's broken will not end up going well. It, it, it won't work. You'll need wisdom to sort through when to speak, when to not speak, what to step into, what to not step into, where to use your energy, where to own your limits. You will need wisdom. You're just going to need wisdom. And, I, and I've watched the, the reality of living in a broken world like destroy people, lead people to such incredible disillusionment. And Ecclesiastes just names, no matter how much we do in this generation, we can make real progress. We can advocate for real change. Real changes have happened throughout human history because of people that stepped into that space with courage and sacrifice. We can do that. It's not going to fix all the problems. There will still be a world full of problems because we live under the sun and we need a savior. We need a savior. Okay, so I want to own the limits of what I'm saying and own the reality that my voice itself has to be qualified because of, this, of the seat I sit in in society. And so I, I think to name these things, though, is important. We need wisdom to engage well and thoughtfully. Second, not just wisdom, we also, we also said we need patience. We need the patience to endure. No matter how much we, we can see change in our generation or in our time, given the reality that we live in a sinful and fallen world, the next generation will, will still be broken. And we will have come to find out that we contributed as much to the brokenness as the generation that went before us. We're not the first generation to care and try to change things for the better. That's been happening for a long time too. And so every generation brings its new set of advocacy and our new set of like brokenness and corruption. And it's perpetually there. And so the whole generation will fall off the scene. All of our Congress will fall off the scene. All of our presidents, one after another, after another, after another, will fall off the scene and they'll just be another name on the list of somebody has to memorize for American government class. Like, like it'll just be another name. Joe Biden will be another name. The next president will be another name. The next one will be another name. And they will have done their thing and they will be celebrated by some and booed by others. And their charts would have gone, approval ratings would have gone up and down and that'll just keep on happening and our congress will keep on like working through its stuff and they'll get this law passed and then this thing will happen and this and then they realize that was a mistake we shouldn't address it that way and they'll try to and we'll just be fumbling around it's necessary and it's broken and if you if you don't learn to endure and say we need a king who brings a new kind of government on his shoulders and that's what we celebrate in christmas for unto us a son is given, unto us a son is born, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He'll, he'll, he'll build a kingdom of justice. It's coming. We have to learn how to endure and wait for that. Wait for that. With wisdom. With wisdom, how to engage. That's observation number one. Observation number two, as we pick up the pace here, next verses, verses 10 through 13, say this. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Here, here's what he's saying. We live in a world where unrighteousness and wickedness, stuff that God called good and evil, the world's like, eh, let's figure that out on our own. We don't need the creator to tell us what it means to be human. Let's figure that out on our own. And so we start saying, we're going to call that thing evil and, and that thing good. And we just start taking the kind of like value 
assessments and assignments on our own shoulders. And as a society, we start celebrating things that God really explicitly and clearly says ought not to be celebrated. We start endorsing things and normalizing things about our behavior, the way we think about our money, our entertainment, our bodies, our sexuality, our, our resources, our friendships, our marriages. We start thinking about those in our own terms and in our own ways because I get the right to tell like myself what's good and what's evil. We're like, okay, that's what we're doing. That feels like normal American, you know, rhetoric. It's also exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3 when they brought pain and death and destruction into the world, is that I get to decide for myself. I get to decide for myself. And once we start saying in our culture that, that you can do whatever you want and you have the right to decide what's good and bad for yourself, once we start normalizing that, we almost start celebrating this thing, and that's what's happening in the passage. Like, wickedness has, has been celebrated and championed in the world, and what he ends up saying right here in the passage, he says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, yet I know that it will be well for, with, with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. He's saying, hey, that attempt to do things on our own terms in our own ways, even if right now it feels like it's not being revealed, like um, the kind of unrighteousness that's normalized in our culture. And I'm not... There is conservative unrighteousness and there's progressive unrighteousness. I think everybody wants to like jump into these kinds of like, oh yeah, those guys, like those people over there, those people over there. No, like the unrighteousness is shot through us. It's in me and it's in you. And we live in a world where it's just like normalizing, rejecting the reign of God and doing things our own way, doing things our own way. And and it can feel like those are being unaddressed. And that's what he's saying in the passage. Is it like judgment isn't coming quickly to show like, look, that wicked thing leads to horrible outcomes and judgment and devastation. And the righteous people experience joy in life. Life doesn't shake out like that. It's more complex in the way it shakes out. And so it kind of gives this invitation to just like keep living in unrighteousness as if there's no accountability. And this is saying in the end, and the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't know how it's going to happen, but in the end, God's going to sort it out. That's the the way they'll end the whole thing is fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment whether for good or for evil. In the end, it will be revealed. And he says, pursue righteousness. So that's the second observation. Pursue righteousness in a world that celebrates unrighteousness. We're still called to pursue righteousness trusting that judgment will come and God cares. And what does it mean to fear him and to trust him and to follow his way even when it seems like it is totally against the tide of culture? We trust Jesus and we follow him. Third observation says this, verse 14. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth. There's righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. This is hevel. This is absurd. Bad stuff happens to, to really good people. And good stuff happens to really bad people. Sometimes devastation comes and it almost feels arbitrary. Sometimes good stuff happens to good people. Sometimes bad stuff happens to bad people. Sometimes it doesn't happen like that. It feels like smoke in the wind. I can't make sense of it. It doesn't make sense to me. I can't control the outcome. So I could be a really good person and have a really crappy life or I could be a really, really crappy person and end up having like a relatively good life. 
What, what do I do with that? And what he says is interesting. We'll spend more time on this next week. He says it right there in verse 15. So I commend joy. He's like, hey, find some joy. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, he says, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the, under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Hey, you don't know how to navigate in a wild world where you can't control the outcome of your life? Lean into joy. Lean into joy. It says, find some enjoyment in a world where you can't control the outcomes of your life. Like, there are lots of bucket drainers in this world. There are going to be painful moments in your life. Things are just going to drain you. It's going to be sad, grievous. You're going to lament. You're going to grieve. You're going to be stressed. It's going to be hard. You're going to be processing. You're going to be disoriented. Lean into, find some bucket fillers. (laughs) Find some things that, like, that's, I love that. A nice cup of coffee looking at the snow on a Sunday morning. What a gift. Sit and watch the Broncos Chiefs game on a Sunday afternoon with some friends. What a gift. Have, have a happy hour with a friend on a Tuesday afternoon. What a gift. Like hang out with my niece and my nephew and see them growing up. What a gift. Go on a date night with my spouse. What a gift. Go out with some friends, plan a vacation. What a gift. Find some things like, hey, go out and do something. Go skiing in the mountains. Like, we live in Colorado. What a gift. Go on a little hike, sit by a river. What a gift. Lean into some joy. The world is wild. Find some enjoyment. It says that'll help you as you navigate life under the sun. We'll spend almost the entirety of our message next week focusing on that reality. You're like, thank God. Uh, it, it, his, he's, this is the fourth of five times he's going to say essentially the same thing. In chapter nine, he's going to say it with a little more sustained thoughtfulness, and we'll lean into that most of the message next week, okay? So find some joy. And then the last thing that we end with is this. When life makes no sense, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The way he ends in verses 16 and 17 is essentially like, hey, you can't make sense of this. It's absurd at times. It's wild. It's upside down. You think it should be like this, and it ends up being like this. You think this should go well, and it goes poorly. You think this should go poorly, it goes well. You think you figured it out, and then it turns out you haven't figured it out. You meet a guy that on some Sunday is standing up. He's like, I figured it out. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, like, it's just like nobody, we don't, when it makes no sense. And so he has this sense, the Ecclesiast- Ecclesiastes has this sense that at some point God's going to make sense of this thing. But he wrote at a time in history where that had not yet come to its fullest fruition. And we sit at a point in history where we know where this story is headed. This story is headed to Jesus, to the creator himself who takes on flesh and comes into this world, not to leave it subjected to futility and brokenness and corruption and pain and devastation and evil, but in his love, in his compassion, he enters into it and is able to sympathize with us as we navigate through life under the sun. With all the injustices, he suffered injustice. With all the chaos, he suffered chaos. Though he was faithful and righteous, he was poor and marginalized. When he loved people, often they hate him. Though he served people, they often betrayed him. Though he was righteous and thoughtful and truthful and kind, he was unjustly murdered and executed. And he did it all. He did it all as an expression of the love of God for the world. He did it all to atone for our own sin that brought this devastation into the world so that through his atoning work on the cross, his shed blood, we could experience forgiveness 
from the creator for the ways we've tarnished his creation. We could be brought into relationship with the creator through whom we can find joy and peace and love and hope. And because of the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, we can trust that he has the power to fix everything. I can't fix everything. I can't control everything. I can't judge everything. I'm a limited, finite, broken person with a bent mind and a limited vantage point and no real power to do anything meaningful in this world. But Jesus has power. He has wisdom. He has justice. He has love. He has mercy. He has grace. And he gives hope. And he's promised that the God who entered into this world and laid down his life on the cross, he will come again. He's going to fix it all. And so when you're disoriented and when it makes no sense, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay faithful to him. Hold fast to him. And he will help us navigate life under the sun. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you help us even today to find joy with you, to find hope in you, to find wisdom from you. Where these words are poking us and where they're uncomfortable and hard, would you help us to look to you? Just keep fixing our eyes on who you are and what you've done. Thank you that your steadfast love never ceases. Thank you that your mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And thank you that your faithfulness towards us is great. Help us to hold fast to you, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite the communion service to make your way forward. As you navigate through life and whatever you go through, communion every week is a way for us to look again to Jesus, week after week after week. And remember that in communion, we remember the body of Christ is broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you. As an expression of God's love for you in the past, as an expression of God's presence with you here and now in the present, but also as a foretaste of where the whole world's headed when we finally get to feast with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is for everybody who put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're grateful that you're here. We want this to be a place where you can explore the claims of Christianity and learn what it means to follow Jesus. Um, but for those that have put their faith in Christ, this is a, a reminder for us and a celebration for us of the work of Christ and the grace that he gives us even here and now today. So I actually want to invite everybody to stand, and we're going to pray this prayer we've been praying throughout Ecclesiastes. And then we'll celebrate communion together. Would you pray this with me? Father in heaven, free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways, even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.